Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the nature podcast that explores the human side of conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Legal and illegal pet trades, vehicle collisions, power lines, fires, habitat loss, and human conflict. The planet's wildlife is having a hard time existing alongside us. While we sadly lose countless individuals every year from human-caused calamities, thankfully, some are given a second life. Dedicated conservationists all over the globe have studied animal rehabilitation and open rescue centers to provide injured wildlife with immediate medical attention and then either release them back into the wild when they fully healed or provide them with a home in captivity to live out the rest of their days in comfort. Just like you and me, each rescued individual in a wildlife facility has a story and a life lesson worth sharing. Today's guest, Ramon Casares, recognized the power of these stories. And for the past 10 years, he has traveled all over the world taking stunning photographs of rescued animals and sharing their story with the high-end art community. Ramon and I have a deep discussion about his childhood and how his mother and father influenced the work he pursues today, why he got into photography, how the idea for the XC2 gallery came to him, how he picks his subjects and the logistics behind his photography, his pursuit into the art world, and why he decided to make high-end art consumers his target demographic, what he sees as the road forward for positive change, and his hopes for the future of ex situ and conservation as a whole. A quick disclaimer, or heads up rather, Ramon and I talk a lot about politics, probably the most that's ever been openly discussed on the show. So I recommend coming in with an open mind, regardless of your political beliefs, and maybe thinking about why you might agree or disagree with Ramon's views. I personally love having unfiltered conversations, and that's exactly what today's episode is, a conversation between two conservationists. <laughs> All right, everyone, I won't hold you up any longer. Please enjoy this wide-ranging discussion with Ramon. Awesome, Ramon. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for sitting down with me. And I will be fully transparent, everyone. This is take two. So <laughs> oh, we get double the great time with Ramon. So let's, let's start at square one here, Ramon. Where does your love of nature and wildlife come from? Was it always in you from day one or did it develop over time? Well, first of all, thank you for the invite. I mean, it's it's an honor for me to be a part of this, uh, of the podcast that you're doing. So thank you. So to go back to your question, I think it's embedded on me. I have this tale uh, that my mom tells me all the time that I actually learned how to crawl following ants. So I think it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's part of who I am. I don't have a moment in time where I, I remember starting being interested in, in nature and wildlife. I think it's always been there for me. So where did you grow up then? I grew up, I actually grew up in the city. 
I grew up in the city, in Buenos Aires, um, but my father was a polo player, so we went, we used to go out to the countryside a lot. So I had access to wildlife, horses, dogs, and, and you know, open fields uh, where I could just, I don't know, play around nature, uh, climb trees and stuff like that. I had a, a pretty... Uh, nature embedded childhood, regardless of having been raised in the middle of the city, the capital city of Argentina. So, yeah. Oh, wow. That's actually really cool. Wow. Your dad was a polo player. So how often were you out in nature? Do you think, was it like a weekly thing? Was it a long or was it just a season or how much did you get out and explore as much as you could? Weekly, I mean, there was not one weekend when we didn't go out to wh- wherever he was playing polo, and that means going to a like I think you call it farms where you have the polo field, but it's you know I don't know maybe hundreds of acres uh, of land. So when he was playing polo, I was just I was going to a a river or not a river, but a you know a stream or a lagoon or a forest or something and. I was doing my own thing while he was doing his. Although, <laughs> as you can see here, I did, that's the cover of a Polo magazine. So I do a lot of horse photography too because of him. I mean, I love horses and that's because of him. Oh, that makes so much sense. Okay, <laughs> we will definitely get back to the horses. Okay. That's, that's a big thing that uh, that's who you are and what you do. So then... I guess what came next? So I know you dabbled with like the nature career for a while, but you also entered photography, you know, like that's what you do and what you spend so much time doing professionally. So I guess what came first or did you, were you experimenting with them both at the same time? Were you like a teenager at this point or? Uh I think it's it, it, it came really natural when I was a teenager, actually, because my mom, the photography parts come from my mother. She used to, back then, it was not very common to see somebody with a big camera and a big lens, and she, she had that. So I, I was taking that camera all the time with me and, and photograph whatever I could, a dog, I don't know, whatever. A tree or nothing. I was spending a lot of film doing nothing. <laughs> but I started the fo- I, my photography side came from, from my mother. And I think, and as I told you, wildlife was always there, like around me. But I did study uh, advertising. I work in, a, in an advertising agency, in several advertising agencies as a creative director. But I didn't see myself as an old man working in that business because it's it's just, I don't know, it wasn't for me. So I decided to make photography, my which was my hobby. I made it my profession. So now I need a new hobby. But since then, I started professionally doing a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I had to eat and pay bills. So I did fashion photography, product photography, events, whatever I could. But... At the same time, I was doing a lot of wildlife photography too on the side and just for me. And yeah, but I think it it came naturally and it was kind of always there. So 
again, my life is it's it's a mess, so to speak, in that sense, because I never really planned ahead with my profession or whatever. So yeah, I, I, it was it was very natural how I became a photographer. So one of the last times we chatted, though, you told me that you spent a little time zookeeping. So why did you not continue down that path and you actually decided to go photography? Was that just a short stint or was there something that you didn't like about it? Or I, I guess I guess why did you not now that you know you have this strong passion for nature? I guess why did that not keep you and gravitate you is more of what I was curious about. Zookeeping actually, it has like these two sides in me. One is because when I was a child, I wanted to be a rock star, a conservationist, and a zookeeper. Those were my dreams. <laughs> I do music, I am a conservationist, and I was a zookeeper, so I got it off my chest, so to say. Um, but at the same time, the thing is, I think I was a zookeeper in... 2001, so I was 21 I was while I was studying advertising. And I don't know how it is in other countries, but in Argentina, it doesn't pay well. And I was studying advertising too. So uh, I was kind of looking forward to my next stage in, in my career path or whatever. So I just did it because I felt the need. I had the opportunity and I felt the need to do it just for myself. By then, I was also uh, volunteering with the Andean Contra Conservation Project. So I was already really aware of a lot of conservational issues that, uh, and what I did like. And what I did do during my zookeeping uh, years was that every time my bosses weren't listening to me when I, have, when I was giving you know, uh, talks to the public... I kind of put down the mic and talked to children about the problematics of zoos and how some captivities in animals are not okay, you know? So I was talking about conservation and maybe we have an injured animal and I was like, okay, this animal has a reason why he has to be in captivity, but this other animal is in perfect shape, so he shouldn't be. So I tried to, you know, raise a little bit of awareness in the public so they didn't, because it's, it's so they didn't, left the place with no information other than, oh, I just saw a giraffe, very pretty, in the middle of the city, you know. That was kind of a, a dichotomy is the word uh, about being a zookeeper because I love wildlife and I don't want to see it captive, but I was a zookeeper. So for me, it was a struggle. So the way to, to kind of balance that was to at least be truthful with my talks to the public about about wildlife captivity. Yeah, uh, and it's it's definitely interesting that you brought that up because that is probably one of the biggest not not the biggest but one of the criticisms of zoos is and the captivity the captivity part. Um, and I know a lot of zoos that are doing phenomenal work, and there's a lot of zoos that could Absolutely. be doing a lot better. And then, of course, when you go on an international scene, a lot of places don't have the same regulations that maybe some really strict areas do. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's as a conservationist, sometimes it is really hard. I was in the zoo world a long time, and uh, the good ones are really good, and they have their place. But uh, I also... <laughs> moved on from from the zoo world as I felt I was making bigger impact in, in other ways. So um, 
yeah, but I, I'm glad that you at least got the chance to explore that and you did check that off your list of, yeah, <laughs> of life goals to do. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And on the other hand, what, what bothers me a lot with this zoo discussion that gets every time something happens in a zoo, everybody's like, you know, painting signs and marching against this these companies because that is what they are at the end of the day. I don't like the 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 extreme thought of no more zoos. I mean, as you said, there are zoos that do a lot for conservation. So I think in the at the end of the day, it's about helping zoos become even better at conservation projects uh, uh, and things like that. But it's not about getting being against it. I mean, I don't love captivity and captive animals, but I don't believe in being outside the, the entrance of the zoo, yelling, no more zoos, because that changes nothing. Nothing. And I think this generation, I am sorry, I'm going to say it, they really like to yell at the entrance of whatever they don't like and be really against it. But at the end of the day, they change nothing because you have to get in the mud and you have to get inside the the the, the real problems. So I, I'm not pro-Zeus, but I'm not against them either. I'm just, I mean, I know they aren't going to disappear. So you know what? Let's work together and make better companies. Because that's what zoos are. They are companies. They need to make money, but they could, at the same time, be doing a lot uh, for conservation for a lot of species. They have the means, the land, the you know, the, the professionals. So it's not about closing zoos. It's about helping them become better. So yeah, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> like I said it. It's on air. It's on record. It's on yeah, air. actually. Yeah. I love that you bring that up. Um, I, cause I, I'm sure anyone listening would not be surprised that I'm talking to a lot of people all the time, a lot behind the scenes that I haven't had a chance to publish on air yet, but I'm luckily talking with some people where their big goal is to revolutionize, uh, the conservation impact of zoos for the better. Um, mm -hmm. because as conservation changes and grows, and adapts and is much more aware of mm -hmm. what real impact is a lot of the globe essentially of the conservation field realm is starting to really scrutinize zoos and so yeah. luckily though a lot of them are willing to listen and to have great potential and so yeah. i've been having some great conversations with some people that are now in leadership positions where that are at least in the united states i don't know abroad mm -hmm. um that i have some pretty important roles in some zoos here with high influence in the united states mm -hmm. and so i'm really excited to when i can bring those people on and also see how they plan on changing and adapting what their zoos do so that's very exciting i love to see that as somebody who also quit my zoo career because i didn't feel mm -hmm. like i was having enough good impact and i was at the time at one of the world's most famous zoos so which one um, but do you it, know what to say no i can't absolutely it was at the columbus <laughs> zoo it's columbus zoo and aquarium oh, nice. here in ohio so uh it would go would go back with that and the san diego zoo is the biggest one in the united states and it was a great zoo, great reputation. The, the animals are treated like royalty pretty much. Mm -hmm. But there was just, I mean, personally for me, and it sounds like it might have been similar for you, there mm -hmm. was this disconnect with the public 
and the message that was trying to be like sent out, like, you know, cause I was on the guest engagement side at the time. I did some like zookeeping, um, internships at that zoo. And then I later actually got a professional zookeeping career for a little bit. Um, but, but since I was on the guest engagement side, I was talking to people and, you know, there would be like a cheetah demonstration or something, you know, this wonderful, beautiful cheetah and doing all these really cool things. And all the people would say, or like, I would talk to a little girl and they, I'll just be like, mommy, mommy, I want a cheetah. I and it didn't cheetah. matter. Exactly. It didn't matter what the zookeeper was saying. It didn't matter any of these exactly. things. They just wanted whatever it was or, exactly. um, and so I just couldn't get over that disconnect. I couldn't, Absolutely. I couldn't get over. And, and also too, like that little girl or little boy had every reason to say that because they yeah, see because another person. At the end of the day, that the cheetah has doing that. Exactly. So yeah. that was my big thing. And, um, and so now, like, you know, what I do professionally now that I do conservation tourism stuff, I'm very against any sort of like changing animal behavior in any way or, or interfering with animals, whatever it might be. Uh, and so, cause I feel like that's really powerful too, uh, too, or showing wild animals in these landscapes mm -hmm. or when they are living with people actually demonstrating how difficult it is to live with dangerous wildlife. So just showing, showing the truth. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So, totally. um, I did not expect to go down that rant, but <laughs> that's so, so, so something similar. So like, I really do not want to piss off the zoo world because there is so much good, like the C a species survival plan, the, SP the SSPs. Um, there's so many species that literally would be extinct if it wasn't for captive Absolutely. breeding facilities that have brought these animals back. So like, I don't want to be all whatever, but there is a lot of room to grow. <laughs> Absolutely. I know, but exactly. But I'm, I, I agree with you 100%. The thing is that most of the people now, when they don't like something, they just stand against it. And then Instead of offering solutions. Exactly. I mean, again, they are counterproductive in so many ways for <laughs> their own mission in life. They are counterproductive for their for their own interests. So I I don't really understand that those extremes. I'm a conservationist, but I am not ex extreme. I mean, we have this really large population of uh, beavers in Argentina, in the South Argentina, beavers are no, no, not native from, from Argentina, of Argentina. You cannot, I mean, it's not even a, a, an endangered species, right? So you cannot just, because what these people are about is we should capture them and take them to their home. That's not realistic. And at the same time, these little beavers, which are getting like multiplied by the hour, are destroying an amazing environment in Patagonia. So what should you do? My position is kill them all, hunt them down and control the population. And that's it. That's what they did with goats in Galapagos. I know goats are, are domestic animals, whatever, but I mean, at the same time, it's the same thing. Conservation is not about one subject, one animal, and you just, oh, what a be beautiful beaver. I'm going to grab him and take him back to his natural habitat in Canada. Conservation is about environment, and it's about the bigger picture. So if you want to preserve, let's say, Patagonia, 
you need to get rid of the beavers. And that's how I stand. And many conservationists hate me because I say this, but I think it's, it's about that. It's, you cannot save every animal and treat them as if they were pets. They are not. So one thing is one thing. You want to be like this extreme conservationist and don't hurt a fly and mix it with cows and pigs and, every, and be a vegan and all of this. Okay, go ahead and do it. But don't, don't interfere with real conservation because we are trying to do what really matters and what is realistically possible to do. So unless we're treating with an endangered species, well, then I do, I would suggest, let's capture them all and bring them where they belong. If it's not an endangered species, you cannot go spending money that nobody has to do kind of like such a big uh, project about capturing thousands and thousands of beavers to take it back to Canada and do what? So I don't know, it's, it's, it's a thin line but I, at least, I myself have it very clear. I mean, some people don't. I think in conservation, it's about the bigger picture. You cannot be like humanizing and personalizing everything into, into each individual because it's not going to work. Again, I mean, if we don't have the, the, the means or the money to do a lot of things that we would like to do, even less to spend it in, in animals that don't need to be saved, so to speak. And it sounds cruel, and I know it, and I would love to not have to say this about, I don't know, killing beavers or whatever. But at the same time, I mean, it's about being realistic and, and real conservation. And real conservation is not always pretty. So I don't know. That's my yeah. position about that. Right? Yeah, no, I absolutely uh, understand and agree with that. It's just the hard truth it's the mm -hmm. hard reality. And I've now luckily have had some incredible scientists on the show where that is what they do. And it's called eradication. Exactly. And it's to save the native wildlife that's there. Mm -hmm. And I like and I have conversations with them. You know, we have like our sit down recorded version and it is open. But I will say that sometimes People are a little bit more reserved during the interview, which I understand. And then I'll have these other conversations, you know, with them off air and, you know, and they'll talk about what it's actually like to do this work and they fucking hate it. Like, but it's they horrible. understand the big picture, you know, they understand mm -hmm. the big picture. Exactly. Like as somebody, I love cats, but cats are actually a huge problem on mm -hmm. many it's they're devastating so much wildlife yeah. and i yeah. i wish i would i saw on instagram the other day that this organization they posted i think it might have been in australia mm -hmm. they had the balls to do this and i was very proud of them um i follow them i gotta i gotta figure out what this video was they showed them they like posted a video of the way they humanely euthanize feral cats on their land okay. to protect this very endangered bird and this whole area mm -hmm. that's fenced off. And these cats are trying to get into this fenced area that is protecting this very endangered species. And mm -hmm. they, they posted it. And I was so proud of them because I'm like, totally. this is real conservation. Oh, and they mm -hmm. got their, 
they got berated in yeah, the comment probably. section. Probably. And but they stood their ground and I'm like, good for you. Cause they were like, this is yeah. what it actually takes. Like you don't mm -hmm. want to understand what it actually takes to protect these incredible animals from the wildlife mm -hmm. and what we've done to harm their, them. They were mm -hmm. fine. And then we introduced these invasive species that are destroying totally. them. So totally. that's yeah. just this field is very emotionally draining in a lot of ways. And oh. sometimes we just have to accept how dirty, not dirty, just uh, dark it can I mean, be to exactly, do the work. It's, exactly. It's not, always, it's not always hugging panda bears. I mean, that's not conservation, <laughs> you know. I mean, people, are, people really think that conservation is about, you know, being on a boat and watching whales and hugging panda bears and... Be, it's not about that. I mean, most of the time you see injured animals or you have to uh, euthanize a, a, a lot of animals or you, you're dealing with real issues, you know. I don't know how to put it, but I mean, yeah, nowadays everybody is really opinionated, but their opinions are made from such an empty place because it's just an opinion about from it, it comes from nowhere. I mean, it's not even how to say it politely, but I mean, I am a, I am ignorant about a lot of things, right? Okay, I don't know anything about quantum physics or I don't know music or cars. So these people, they love animals, but they are really ignorant about what real conservation is like. So, and they are a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of them, so they they kind of make themselves heard, and at the end of the day, their message it's as I always say, counterproductive for for actual conservation. So it's really really difficult. Yeah. So let's actually talk about some of the solutions and what you've done. So you've taken something very dark and made it beautiful in your you. wonderful gallery called Exitu. So <laughs> let's talk about that for a while. How did the idea of this gallery come to you? Where, where did it begin? Exitu is actually a project that was born. I would like to, I would love to have like this amazing story about how it was, how it came to be, but it was born because of my love for studio photography and for wildlife, okay? So uh, somehow I wanted to do studio photography of wildlife. But as I told you, when I was a zookeeper, I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I'm against captivity with no purpose, okay? That's my main issue. I'm against wildlife captivity with no purpose. So I thought, okay, how can I photograph wildlife in a studio? I can do rescued wildlife. And I, what I can do is tell their stories. So it kind of started there. And the, the good thing about that is that, it, as I told you, each of these animals in my photographs have a rescue story, has a, a represent a conservational issue. And they have a purpose. Their captivity has a purpose. Okay? Thing for because they cannot be released back into the wild. So they are part of a breeding program or they are ambassadors for the rescue center that save them. They have a lot of reasons why they need to be captive, held captive. So that's what I like. I, that doesn't, at least to me, it doesn't 
contradicts my mission with Exidu. So yeah, that's how it came to be because I wanted to do wildlife in studio and show animals from a different perspective. What I do with Exidu is I work with, with a plain backdrop, black backdrop, sometimes white, but pretty much the idea with that is to show in the photo, what you, when you look at it, you only see the animal, right? So it's the only source of light, color, and life. And as they are really isolated in this black backdrop, they are clearly ex situ, which means out of environment. So the idea with ex situ, once I started working and working and taking more and more photos, I realized that conservation has this, uh, how to say, it, this communication problem because they, for me at least, they keep talking to people that are already into that. You can see Discovery Channel, you can see Animal Planet, you can see Nat Geo, you can see a lot of these humongously big companies and it's really hard for them, in my opinion, to reach a new target of people that aren't already into conservation or into wildlife. So what I was what I am trying to do with Exidu is play, uh, reach art galleries, art fairs, um, art magazines, whatever, private collections, stuff like that, and get these photographs, each of each of them with the rescue story of that animal, into a different uh, environment. The art environment is a, it's incredibly big. It's incredibly uh, filled with a lot of powerful people, uh, rich people, and I think it could make a difference once you are inside that little environment. You, it's not easy to get into that, but you are at, at least I'm trying to reach a new target of people because if we keep talking to ourselves about conservation, we are going to reach nowhere. We're not going to get nowhere. I mean, it's just, okay, uh, I think we should take care of the rainforest. Okay, yes, that's it. That's what conservation is doing right now. They are talking to themselves. So I think we need to find ways to bring the, the subject into a lot of more tables, so to speak, you know? Uh, and what I'm trying to do, uh, as what I do is photography is, okay, how can I add value to what I do and to conservation from a different perspective, reaching a new target of people, because, the, and this is my equation. Let me see if I can make it clear. You have two kinds of people be outside of conservation. You have two kinds of people, people that don't care and people that don't know. The people that don't care are kind of lost. <laughs> but the people that don't know, you can inform them. And then they divide and get them you can divide them again into the, okay, they can be informed and not care or be informed and care. So when I'm aiming at that little target of, little target of people to inform them and to reach them from an absolutely new perspective and, and giving them the chance to be informed and see what road they decide to take. Because at the end of the day, when we all die, we will leave something behind. We will leave a legacy behind and it will end up showing if we took care of our environment or not. Each of us individually. So I'm trying to 
through what I do, uh, at least give people the opportunity to care or know at least and be conscious of the fact that they knew what was happening and just looked the other way. Hmm. And when did you have this idea? When, when did you launch this? I started working with Exidu already 10 years ago. Wow. So it's a long time. It's a long time. Ten years ago, I did the first photograph of a rescued pelican who got blinded in one eye because of a fishing line. And, and when I saw the, the, my first photographs of, of, you know, studio portraits of animals, and, and I was like, okay, this is really nice. I mean, this doesn't look like the typical wildlife picture of encyclopedia photo of an animal. This, this kind of, I managed to get a very different feeling to them. So then I started, okay, I need to use this to, to get to a new to a new target of people. So that's that's how it started. I mean I just saw the, the aesthetic the aesthetic that my work had and I'm I'm kind of Baroque and tenebrist. I like these these harsh harsh shadows in my work. So it, it, it really like the work itself took me to what I'm trying to do now, you know? I mean, I was aiming to be in conservation in magazine, and then I, 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 it came to me that uh, that wasn't the path that I needed to take. And then that's when I started, you know, aiming at art galleries, fairs, and stuff like that. And it, it's been working pretty great so far. I mean, I have really a large spectrum of, of large media covering what I do, like newspapers, magazine, uh, TV channels and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of, you know, the snowball is, grow, is growing. So it takes a lot of time and hard work, but it's it's happening. So I'm, I'm, and this is, for me, this is a life project. It's not going to have an end. So I have all the time in the world, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> how I don't have a rush. Realization, yeah, how did that realization come to you that you needed to connect with a different demographic instead of speaking to the, you know, shouting into a room full of people that are all there for the same reason. Mm -hmm. How did you make the realization that you needed to look elsewhere for people to expose your gallery to? I was a, I was a big consumer of these large networks of uh, wildlife and nature, like BBC, NBC, Geo, Animal Planet, and stuff like that. I love what they do. I'm not against them, but I, I have, I had this feeling that I don't know. I never once any of my non-conservation friends got to sit with me to watch a documentary or anything because they were not interested, and. The, any spe no specific channel was kind of to even try to reach them. So it was like, uh, it's like yelling to the wall at the end of the day, because you are doing all these great things, but you are not really changing much. Again, I'm not saying these big uh, ONG NGOs are, are, are doing anything. They're doing a lot, of course. But at the end of the day, in my opinion, we need to reach the everyday average show to actually make a difference, a big difference. You know, it's, it's like I told you, my first photo of XC2 was a pelican that got blinded because of a 
fishing line. And that is not a, a save the pandas problem or save the uh, save the Amazon's issue. It's okay. Let's let's get this fisherman or any fisherman aware of this specific problem that they cause to this pelican. Okay, so it's it's about talking about the little things too. It's not always oh, there's a, and I know that the big problems exist and are there and we need to to take, you know, to do something about it too. But at the end of the day, any regular person doesn't know what to do about those big problems. They don't know what to do to save the pandas. They don't know what to do to save the, the rainforest. They don't know what to do to save the whales. They are too large of, of, of a request, so to speak, to, to actually reach... Uh, the everyday walking in the street person. So what I'm trying to do is to tell these like minimal stories about conservation, because then you everybody can relate. Because I'm talking about a lot of different issues, smaller ones, bigger ones, but anybody can relate to some of them. So, yeah, and that's what I love about Exitu. I mean, it reaches everybody, uh, people that have animals as, as pets, from illegal trading, uh, illegal hunting, poaching, uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I got blank. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I love about Exitu. It reaches a really wide variety of people and and I think it's it's what we need to do as conservationists. Not only not just talk about the big problems, but to tone it down a little bit and and you know just put it out there. Put out there kind of not such larger than life problems and quests because most of us don't really know how to react to that and they all seem like okay the whales are out there and i don't know what's happening and i, I don't relate to the middle of the ocean problems because i live in the mountain i don't know we need to start thinking smaller to make bigger changes in my opinion yeah yeah what's relatable what can we all do mm -hmm. what's one small thing that we can all do that can really help i can i completely agree with that when it I mean, I think that's also another reason why, like with this, like the climate change movement and stuff, and I know mm -hmm. so many people that are against it, and then I have, I love being where I am because I'm right in the smack dab middle of both uh, political parties. Like, I have some of the closest people to me that are, like, far-right Republicans, and then I have some people that are closest to me that are, like, far-left Democrats. And I love being right smack mm -hmm. dab in the middle because I get to hear both sides of things. It helps yeah. keep you grounded in perspective on ty types yeah. of stuff. And I think that's one of the big issues right now with the climate change movement is that it's just so big that it feels that nothing anybody can do will actually help. You know, mm -hmm. you know, when you try to distill it down to one person, like, how can I help this issue when I can't change the way airlines fly their jets? You know, exactly. like things like that. I can't change the way, you know, our shipping is done across the ocean from China to the U.S. Like, mm -hmm. so I that's why I really like your approach. And distilling 
conservation down into actionable things just like that you know like oh mm -hmm. maybe if you do want a pet just get a cat that you keep indoors or mm -hmm. a little fluffy dog that is always on a leash like you have the love that you want but it's not an you know an endangered species or a trafficked exactly. a trafficked monkey baby you know from a forest or something exactly. like that that beforehand that you wanted i mean i grew up that way like i i watched all of these things i wanted a monkey i wanted I know. a cat oh my I god wanted I, wanted everything. I wanted everything for a cub. of course you know what of i mean course. so i understand I mean, the desire exactly but you you touch over a few subjects that i want to get into it Mm -hmm. One, let's just get this, uh, get, let, let, let's get this over with because when in the U.S. you have a lot of uh, legal exotic pets that you can have, and that is one of the problems with these big channels that promote the pet industry. Because in in most of the countries, having a parrot is illegal. Right. It's absolutely illegal because it comes from poaching, from illegal trading. They are just, you know, harvesting the nest of a lot of parrots uh, in the jungle and stuff like that. But, you know, you're trying to generate a lot of uh, awareness about that problem. But then you have Animal Planet uh, showing you a cockatoo that knows how to roller skate. It's impossible to fight against that because <laughs> at the end of the day, they are promoting that, so it's really hard. The other thing that you said, oh man, politics. I what, There are two things that I hate right now. One is that we have to still be talking about left and right. It's like vintage, man, come on. Really, are we still thinking that way? It's, it's ridiculous. I'm not left, right, anything. I'm about whatever issue I'm dealing with. It might have a solution that goes more to one way or the other, but I, I'm, Same. I couldn't care any less about what a politician has to say if he's talking from a dogmatic point of view. And the same thing happens because right now conservation is kind of being invaded, so to speak, with a lot of left, how do you call it in, in English? Like leftists? Is that... Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's the term. I don't, I don't know if that's kind of insulting or not. To call them uh, leftists? I mean, I, am I, yeah, yeah, but <laughs> keep going, you know what you mean. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't mean it. My English is limited, so I don't mean it as an insult. Yeah. But I think conservation is really being like taking advantage from the left wing's people and at the end of the day they i mean come on if we have to talk in those terms left and right okay what the left people are doing with the, their extreme positions about a lot of issues they are getting half of the population of the world out because they are going to differ in so many other things with them because they are from the left that they are not even going to listen to them about what really matters and what, something that should matter us all, regardless of if you are from the left, from the right, from the middle, from space, whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous what they are doing. And they are really, and this is what I hate about them, and I really hate it because I think it's a big problem. They are really extreme with the way they manifest their positions. You cannot be 
going to the Fontana di Trevi and, and you know, throw paint into the, the water of the, of the fountain in Rome or throwing paint into a painting. Uh, it's like, what are you doing? How is that helping your purpose? You're not just getting people mad at you because you're being really stupid. Okay, you're getting a lot of coverage, but you're getting coverage because you're being stupid, not because what you have to say. So at the end of the day, these guys are really counterproductive. And it's like we, me, I, I, will, I will talk just about me because I don't want to get anybody involved in this, but at the, at the end of the day, me as a true conservationist that doesn't care about left or right problems, it's like I have to fight another enemy, so to speak. I have another, they are adding one more problem to the equation of conservation because they are really that counterproductive to a lot of things. And don't even get me started about vegans. (laughs) 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 No, yeah, yeah, I I absolutely, I, I... I understand your sentiment. And I like, again, that's why I feel so grateful to be where I am, where I have, I see such, I see both sides and I see the way the other one feels when the other one attacks them. And that's what just, oh, it just hurts my soul. Sometimes I'm like, if we are to come together in any way, shape or form, or when one side blames the other for something going wrong or the state of something today. And it's just like, well, look at how you're making the other side feel. And that goes both ways. It's like if we are to come together as a people, if we want to protect our planet, then we need to rate, like put our hand out to the other side and be like, mm-hmm. what do you need? How can I help you? How can I understand what your problems are so that we understand, you know, like there's so many as I, I'm very entrenched in the predator world, you know, I, I'm predators mm-hmm. are my loves of my life. I love them mm-hmm. tremendously. And then there's so much backlash right now on, you know, ranchers and farmers where their livelihood is with livestock and then exactly. having a wolf pack or pumas or, you know, something on their land is technically a direct issue or, or impact mm-hmm. on their yeah. livelihood and they actually care about their livestock and so mm-hmm. how can we as conservationists be the bridge between the issue and exactly. how can we support these people and on both sides like it, this is a both this is an everybody it, problem exactly. okay. this I isn't mean, a left or right this is everyone exactly. you know but i mean it, it's always an everybody problem the thing is that the left wing people and the right wing people are so stupid that they cannot <laughs> see that they need to work together. It's really simple if you, if you kind of, if you think about it for 10 seconds. But again, what you say about, about this, this person, this person that has, you know, livestock and God, one thing that could happen is the government could help ranchers to build or better fences or, hey, a puma ate 10, because sometimes that happens, a puma with cubs can eat or kill, not even eat, kill, let's say, I don't know, 10 sheep in one night just because he's teaching the cubs how to hunt. I've seen that happen. Okay, the government could step in and say, okay, how much that was, how much did it lost? Here you go. That way you don't get the farmer to hate pumas and kill every puma he has on site. 
that way you you have the government like doing actually one good thing for conservation because the government is like doing nothing or they just do whatever gives them you know kind of visibility but not not I don't I don't believe in in politicians that way there are very very few politicians that actually care about actual conservation but there are so many things that could be done and it, it is a, a, an everybody problem so uh, but again if we keep talking about left and right whatever the left has to say because it's so dogmatic the right is going to oppose it and whatever the right has to say, because it's so dogmatic too, the left is going to oppose it. So they are like, so stupid. I know I, I don't have another word to say because it's stupidity <laughs> in its finest. Stupidity in its finest. I mean, this matters to us all as humans. Right now, I am sorry I'm bringing, bringing him up. We have Elon Musk trying to go to Mars to live there eventually someday. We cannot take care of a planet that works and we want to make a, pla a dead planet work for us. I mean, we cannot take care of our oceans, our jungles, our environment. And we think and we are spending billions of dollars on a dead planet that we might eventually have to move to because we destroyed this one. It's, it makes no sense to me. I mean... Okay, Elon Musk, you want to go to Musk? Go. It's not, you can do whatever you want with your money. I'm fine with it. But the 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 idea behind it is we will have to leave this planet eventually because it's it's going to end up being destroyed by us. So what are we doing? We're we're trying to go somewhere else that it's already dead because we couldn't take care of this planet. But because we killed it, it's so weird, and, and I don't know. I think I think that our priorities are so messed up right now. With all this technology, like the technology is really like growing and changing so rapidly, but none of it, or very little of it, is actually going to conservation. And one of the problems, and I'm glad I just remembered this, is that conservation is not well seen. I mean, we were talking about zoos, right? And a lot of people complain, oh, but they are making money with the animals. Uh, and let's say, let's say you have a rescue center and not a zoo. You have a rescue center, right? And you have to, you know, charge for the, the ticket or for the food in there so you can survive. What is wrong with conservationists making a living from conservation. I don't know what that is so frowned upon, but it's like that. It's like, if you want to be a conservationist, you have to be poor and live out of, you know, uh, donations. Why? Why can't we make a lot of money out of conservation so everybody wants to be a conservationist? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, mean, I personally, I deal with that as well. Like that, that personal struggle of, you know, the balance of doing this out of heart versus like, I actually need to make ends meet too. And I think you, you brought up something really like, as you're talking about the Elon Musk thing, 
I think that this actually goes full circle. So you know how you were talking about your main demographic actually isn't in the conservation realm because you're trying to reach a demographic, like a some other people that might have influence. Well, just imagine if one person that was like on the level, like an Elon Musk, like mm -hmm. a multi, multi-millionaire, even a billionaire, they, they got moved in some way, shape or form. Like your work or somebody's work or one of our work that we are entrenched mm -hmm. in this and we know and we have the right message and the right knowledge on how to make conservation impactful. Now imagine if the right person connected with whoever that conservationist was. Imagine what could happen. Exactly. Imagine exactly. what could happen. And that was because that person had the courage to get out of their comfortable bubble <laughs> exactly. to go talk to somebody else. And who knows how many connections that person would have to go through to get to that one billionaire, to get to that one Absolutely. million, multi, multi-millionaire, mm -hmm. that CEO that has a big heart that, you know, or very innovative mind. We're like, oh, all you got to do is X, Y, or Z. And this whole problem will be fixed. And you're like, exactly. holy shit. I didn't know that because I'm not trained in Something, 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 something. I don't exactly. Know. <laughs> I mean, no, I know what you mean. But for example, we have, we have two. Uh, I read about uh, this teenager guy that uh, created a, a it's, I don't know if it's a machine or a system to clean the ocean, right? For, mm -hmm. Clean the yeah. plastic mm -hmm. of the ocean, right? Yep. It's a teenager guy in his, in his garage trying to do something that matters to us all. Why isn't somebody in the caliber of Elon Musk or whoever interested in doing something like that. You can go to Mars too. I mean, it's not going to move your, your bank account needle. You could invest in something like that. We don't have these big fishes of in, in, in the world economy interested in this. I don't know why. It baffles me. But... Again, I mean, I think we need to make conservation profitable because we need more people to want to be a part of it. But as long as we have to be all poor and live off donations in huts, <laughs> it's <laughs> not going to happen. Who would like to go to the middle of the jungle being eaten alive by mosquitoes all his life to save the, uh, I don't know, cappuccino monkey? Very few people would like to do that because they cannot have, you know, they cannot charge a lot, they cannot make money out of it, whatever. We need to make conservation profitable and stop being this, like, only humanitarian, humanitarian uh, thing, you know. I mean, it could be an enterprise. Why not? I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it would be wrong to make it a, a good enterprise. As long as you do what you have to do, what is the problem? We need to change yeah. that. So I hope, and that's why I hope I it work, does eventually. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's why I work in conservation tourism, because to me, that is a solution. It, exactly. it is essentially monetizing nature. Mm -hmm. It's just monetizing nature. And, yeah. and that is, that is a solution. I mean, it's just always unfortunate, you know, when we have things like a global pandemic, it is a very volatile field, which just shows the, how much we've actually value our natural spaces, but all things considered, it is, 
an amazing opportunity as when if you build the right experience people will pay a lot of money I've, I've seen it i've watched it i've, I've built it um i'm continuing to build it build it and support well at the same time since i am first and foremost a conservation biologist like also these people mm -hmm. that want to have this amazing time in nature it's like let me also show you these incredible people that are doing the hard work to keep this place here beautiful exactly. and grand so that you can come visit it and then that it's, i feel is when yeah. we can make some make like big change we have I mean, that overlap it, 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 it comes down to this you make uh a, how do you call it uh nature tourism sorry yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I had conservation tourism okay Ecotourism. Okay, it comes down to this: you make you make uh, ecotourism. The more profitable that is, the more land it will need to preserve. So it's so simple if you think about it. I mean, we have a lot of ecologists. I'm, I'm in Costa Rica right now. We have a lot of ecologists. Uh, doing ecotourism and stuff like that. And the good thing that that works is that they are kind of obligated because of their business to take care of the of the land and the animals. Because if you are going to be promoting ecotourism, and I go there and I don't see one bug or one monkey or one whatever, I'm not going to be going back anymore. So the good thing about ecotourism is you make money the the environment gets taken care of or protected and hey who's it's a win-win situation if you think about it so i don't, i really don't get why it's so hard to society right now 2023 to understand that conservation really needs a change of paradigm 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 no you're right paradigm like a paradigm shift paradigm it needs a, a shift in paradigm so to make it valuable, conservation, I mean, it is valuable, but we need to make it valuable because mm -hmm. that is the, uh, right now, sadly, is how the world moves. And it's the only it way I see today to make people more interested in being a part of it. Let them make money out of it. If they do things right, we get away with our ideas and they get away with theirs, making money. It's a win-win situation. And then we can think about going to Mars or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so then how did you crack into the high-end art world? So one of my big goals with this show, and I hope that one day I'm just I'm grinding and I'm grinding and I'm grinding, is to actually start offering some cool trips to go see mm -hmm. the amazing guests that I've met around the world and bring people with me to go, to essentially just do what I just said. It's like, Let's bring money to the places that need it, have an unbelievable experience, and then also help support me too and keep this show running. Exactly. You know? so it's, exactly. It's, all, yeah. it's all one circle that funnels into each other. Mm -hmm. So that is my idea on how to do this. So how did you, though, get into the high-end art world? Because I wouldn't even know where to begin. What, what, how do you do that? <laughs> it wasn't easy, but as I as I told you, I do a lot of horse photography too, high-end horses, polo, jumping, dressage, and stuff like that. So through my horse work that gets into cover of magazines and art galleries, I when I talk to an art gallery, I, I am, okay, I have these, 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 and these, and I have this. And that last 
this is an exceeding piece, okay? So I give them a horse, uh, a portrait, uh, and a jaguar. So I get in, as I told you recently, uh, right? As I, as I just told you, I get away with mine and they get away with theirs because they want my work about horses and about whatever else I'm shooting. But my condition is, okay, but I have to have this one too because I want to see how if it reaches enough people or not. And that's how I got in. I mean, I've been in Art Basel. I, I, ex I exhibited for for the Queen of England during the the Cartier Polo, uh, Polo Cup. Uh, I exhibited, I have works in Palm Beach, in Worth Avenue and stuff like that. So it works, it's not easy. It took me, I, I, as I told you, I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years and some of these things happened seven years later from from day one, so it's not. It has not been easy. It's not easy because the the, the art world kind of diminishes photography a little bit. But when you get into the right galleries, uh, it happens and it's great. It takes time. It took me a lot of time to to actually get into that, but it it's doable. I'm proof. <laughs> <laughs> yes. With persistence, you are definitely proof. So how do you get the subjects then for your gallery? Is it you have an idea? I, I guess what comes first, like connecting with a wildlife rescue and you're like, you know, hey, what, what's a great story that we could possibly photograph? Or is it the other way around where you are like, wow, I would love a new photo of, you know, a parrot or like a rescue parrot and they find mm -hmm. a wildlife rescue that way? Or or how do you find the subjects that then become part of your gallery? This is a great question because uh, as I told you, Exidu is not about the, the only larger-than-life uh, stories. I just, I do, of course, I do have some, you know, species that I really want to photograph but I don't go behind that. I just contact a rescue center and whatever they have, every story matters. Be it a pigeon, a seagull, a pelican, a jaguar, a puma, whatever they have, their story matters because I want to, to have a, as much variety of conservation issues as I can the bigger ones and the really small ones. So tomorrow I have to go to a rescue center here in Costa Rica yeah. and I have no idea, no idea what I'm going to get uh, into. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to photograph monkeys, parrots, uh, pumas, jaguars, or, or maybe a little bit of everything. I don't know. I just take my studio down there and whatever they have, I want to photograph it because I want to tell that specific story. And for me, each story is equally important. And so then how does one of these photo shoots work? Uh, is it significantly different photographing, say, a jaguar versus like a sloth? How do you approach you these, just, I guess? <laughs> you just came with the most opposite species in the, in the entire <laughs> ecosystem. I mean, is it right? different to photograph a fish or a butterfly? Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, jaguars, the, the jaguars that I do, um, and I actually, I, I think I'm the only one that actually have a, a jumping jaguar in midair. It was a photo shoot that... Uh, I, I kind of visualized for six years until I got it done with these guys, the uh, Jaguars into the Wild Rescue Center. Um, but it took six years to get it done. And 
that was a challenge because we have to work in the uh, not inside the, the the environment. How do you say? I'm sorry. How do you, it's not a cage. Like enclosure. Like a. Like an enclosure. Mm, enclosure. That's the word. It was a challenge because we had to work in the enclosure. I couldn't bring the jaguar to a table and hey, <laughs> give me a thumbs up. So it took a lot of time, as I told you, six years, but we got it done. We, it was just one photo shoot, one, one chance to have it done. And I got it. I got a, a, a few photographs of a jumping jaguar in meter with studio lighting. And I, I'm delighted. Imagine, I think there's no other... A photo like that in the world but yeah jaguars are are very different of of course of from sloths or whatever because they are predators and you cannot just be there with them and maybe move them a little bit or whatever unless they are puppies or cubs right not puppies cubs. yeah cubs <laughs> uh, which i did with which i did with with puma cubs uh, oh. And there were three little orphan brothers that were uh, little orphan siblings that were just the cutest little things. And I, I got to photograph them right before they got into a human isolation enclosure because they were going to be rehabilitated and re-released back into the wild once they grew up. But the, 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 this window of a week when they arrived to the rescue center and they went into the human isolation process, I got to be there and photograph them. And, and yeah, of course, I could interact with them because they were like really tiny. But that is, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the exception. Most of the time, you, you don't interact with most of them. And yeah, with slots or, or you know, birds that can fly or little mamans, small mamans or stuff like that, you can maybe handle them a little bit better because most of these animals cannot be released back into the wild. So they have been tame, tamed, so they don't get too stressed during their life in captivity. But again, they are, uh, they are their captivity, it is justified and it has a purpose because they are part of breeding programs and they are ambassadors, they visit schools, they, they use them for, for educational talks and stuff like that. So even though they will not be released back into the world, they still have a very big, important conservation purpose, even being a healthy captivity. And yeah, of course, with those animals, you, you can interact because they are totally tamed. But again, they are not pets. I mean, I got bitten so many times. I got even... Uh, attacked by a pelican. Who would have thought? <laughs> a pelican that you see them, you know, all clumsy walking like this. And I got attacked by a pelican because these animals, although they can be tamed and stuff like that, you really need to, to understand that they can be tamed to a point. But they will never be a dog. They will never be a cat. They will never be a bunny, even less a goldfish. So, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to make that that clarification because some people say oh you see you 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 treat them like like pets and stuff like that. I don't I don't they are just a little tame because they will live in captivity for their whole life so in order for them to have a better less stressful life in captivity they they get to be tamed tamed a little bit but it, 
again, these are not pets whatsoever. And uh, didn't you say that the photo shoots are pretty short too? It's not like mm-hmm. these are hour long, like glamour shots no. or something. <laughs> I, I, w- I wish because I could be every all day shooting wildlife in studio, but I think it doesn't take me more than the longest could be seven minutes. Except from when I'm working in the animal's enclosure where he can move around and he's He's feeling at home and he's, you know, when you're not bothering the animal, you can be photographing him or her or it for for hours, but you're not bothering him. uh, But when you take them to the studio, it doesn't take me more than five minutes per animal in order to don't, you know, don't stress them a lot. They usually are really, and I have behind the scenes video to prove this, uh, they don't really care at all. I mean, I've done... The parrots and monkeys and then go like every time I fire a flash because they are really light uh, how to say it, uh, low powered flashes the the, the, mm-hmm. the flash is very very dim and it's like it's not too powerful so it doesn't bother them at all and they don't they don't care I mean they go like <laughs> That's, yeah, because most people might think and they ask me a lot of this this is a question that I get a lot is like, oh my god but don't you don't the lights bother them? And I have to explain. And sometimes I show the videos, so you know how they don't really care at all about the the, the flashes. So, but it, yeah, it takes me five minute tops, tops. And I think this is a good time to maybe share how I got introduced to your work. So Adriana, who's been on the show, she you know runs Rescue in Costa Rica. And mm-hmm. so, and I, you know, I wear the shirt all the time, like a uh, high four, like a spider <laughs> monkey all the time and, um, proyecto asses. Like I, I wear this stuff all the time. That's how actually we got connected. And ever since I met her in Costa Rica, she's been telling me about your work. She's like, you need to meet Ramon. You need to meet Ramon. You need to talk about exit two. You need to talk about his gallery. And so clearly you, you all have been connected for, uh, yeah. who, who, like what animals did you photograph there out of curiosity? Do you remember uh, those ones? F- yeah, 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 yeah. I photographed several species of toucans. Uh, mm-hmm. I photographed several species of parrots. Um, and I'm thinking the kinkajou. I don't know if you know what a kinkajou is. Oh, yeah, is. yeah. There was a kinkajou yeah. there. Amazing, visited. amazing. Mm-hmm. I love that species. But they are really hard because they really don't stop moving. So, but yeah, I photograph a, a bunch of species that are amazing, especially toucans because they are so representative and people love them. So it's like a species that you can kind of use for your purpose because who doesn't love a toucan? Right. right. Who doesn't like a toucan? So when you go with a toucan photo to an art exhibit or an art gallery, it's like, oh, really nice. But when I go with a skunk, they're like, what? <laughs> Get out of here. And I love my skunk. I have a picture of the butt of a skunk that I love. <laughs> and I cannot get it into an art gallery. I don't know why. They don't see it. They are missing out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, so, um, so you've, you've mentioned multiple different individuals that you met, but are there any particular stories of individuals that really moved you when you photographed them? Yeah, most of them. And this is a thing that uh, kind of gets over, kind of 
it's not really taken into account by most people. It's like, what I do is great and it's horrible at the same time because I love wildlife and I what I do takes me to places where I keep seeing all these issues and this injured wildlife. So it's like, a, I love what I do, but it, it kind of hurts me too. So it's weird. But yeah, I have a few stories. I have the Homer Simpson of Andean condors because <laughs> it's a, yeah it's an yeah it's an individual that got that hit uh, an electric power tower fell down into a cliff onto a cliff rolled all the way down to a highway and got hit by a truck Jesus so if that is not the Homer Simpson of Andean condors I don't know who, <laughs> what it is. I say it like this because luckily it was rescued and rehabilitated by the Andean Control Conservation Project in Argentina and he was released back into the wild. And I, I, that's one thing that I love about this guy is that I have a studio portrait of a condor that is right now flying in the Andes. So for me, that is like priceless. You know, it's not just any condor in captivity or whatever. It's an actual wild condor that is... He got injured, he got better, he got taken care of, and right now he's flying, I don't know, everywhere through the Andes. So for me, that is amazing. Um, the other story is, as I told you, the jaguar that I photographed, I think, six to seven years ago, uh, was a jaguar that was kept was being kept in a really small cage, uh, like a circus cage, uh, because mm. the owner was a, a circus animal uh, salesman, so to say. So he was rescued, but he lived in that cage for five years. And in that cage, he ate, he slept, and he defecated too. And he was kept there for five years. Uh, and he was in terrible conditions when he was rescued. But the amazing job that this uh, Jaguars into the wild Rescue Center did with him, they they really brought him back to life. And he's not tamed. If you go see it, he will eat you in one second. He <laughs> has been doing a lot of uh, enrichment uh, activities. So he hunts, he climbs, he jumps into the water. He does a lot of things that you cannot believe the amazing health he, he gained or regained after being rescued. And... Um, his name is Autano, and it's it's really amazing, really really amazing what what these guys did to him, uh, to to save him because, and, and weird enough, I mean, from a circus salesman, I mean, really do circuses still have animal numbers? It's weird, right? A twenty twenty three that that is still happening. It's kind of my God, how is not even that has changed or not totally changed because I know that a lot of services don't do that anymore, but right. clearly we need to keep pushing so to stop that. But because that, yes, that it is a no, a town at 100%, no, you cannot do this thing, in my book at least. Yeah, yeah. Those are, I'll talk about, yeah, just beautiful ends to stories, you know? It's like, on one hand, these are so sad, 
crazy things these humans did to them. But then look now that the the beautiful life that they have, like mm-hmm. I w- visited Adriana in person, like that's how their facilities were fantastic. And they really are doing everything they can for the betterment of these animals. And just the fact that they're even there, you know, it just, yeah. I mean, if all of us had our way, none of us would be doing this. Best case scenario is your only option would be to go mm-hmm. shoot them in the wild, you know, like with your, you know, not shoot them, mm-hmm. you know, photograph them in the yeah. wild. Uh, that would be the actual goal. But Absolutely. Since you have these stories that you're able to tell with your just amazing artistic abilities that you have. Like, Thank you. Um, I can't wait to share all of your photos. Like everybody, mm-hmm. like. Well, if you follow Rewildology, you'll see the social media. And of course, you've already sent me so much amazing, <laughs> stunning much. work. I was like, yes, you sent me so many things. And I'm just like scrolling through every single one. Like, this is unbelievable. They're so beautiful. And as someone who considers myself very much an amateur photographer, I'm nothing near close to a professional in any way, but I have enough of an eye to know like, wow, this is this is beautiful. Like, I, I don't even know it. how you did it. I don't know how you did it. I still don't know I how you did it. it. Thank <laughs> you. You're too kind. Too kind. <laughs> so let's talk about the future. What's what's next? So it sounds like you're still photographing. I guess if if you do have quote unquote goals mm-hmm. for Exitu, what are you hoping to achieve with this? In as I told you, my, my in the future, I mean, as I told you, this is a, a lifelong project for me. So it's, I, I don't think it's ever going to end. But as I, I will say this again. I mean, I just want to reach as many people as I can in order to have them informed about a lot of conservational issues and see what side they decide to take. That's pretty much it. Now, Regarding ex situ itself, it's going to be, right now I'm finishing the Americas uh, book, but I'm going to, what I'm aiming to have is one book per continent. So I have to have an Asia's book, a Europe ex situ, uh, Africa ex situ, Oceania ex situ, and you know, so on. So that's pretty much what I'm aiming to with this project. Also having, you know, uh, traveling uh, art exhibitions along the continent in the big cities and stuff like that. So pretty much that is right now in my head, what I what it's right now in my head. But as technology grows more and more, I really don't know what, what will be of Exidu in the future. But I know it will still be going because it's going to end for me. But I don't know in what medium on or, or how, how it's going to be projected or get to the world. But yeah, right now it's about the, the, the book series and the traveling ex- art exhibitions. Mm. Any mm-hmm. chance you'll be up in North America anytime soon? I hope to be there soon because I have a few rescue centers that have green-lighted me to go. One is oh, to photograph wolves and the other one is to photograph birds of prey. So hopefully I'm going to be there this year before December, so we'll see. We'll, see. well keep me posted <laughs> on that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're anywhere in driving distance or if I happen to be somewhere close, 
I don't know. Absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'll let you know. I'm in random places a lot. So, I mean, I'm going to be in Brazil <laughs> in like two weeks. So I've been random hmm. places a lot. So nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. nice. Finally going to go see a wild jaguar is my hope. Good. So. Are you going to Pantanal? I am. I'm leading a trip nice. to the Pantanal. You're going to love, you're gonna love that. You're going to love that. <sighs> yeah. Yes. Yep. So, uh, gonna go see jaguars, and of course, hopefully, some beautiful giant otter families, anteaters, uh, and then mm-hmm. also we are connected with this fantastic ocelot research project. So we'll oh, also nice. be going out with uh, the leader of that project, Enrique, um, and hopefully tracking some ocelots and maybe mm. seeing what type of research that he needs to be done that we can assist him with. That so this is like, I know, I know, my uh, my boss Bill set the whole trip up and so we have the exact same ethos when it comes to conservation yeah. travel so Good. i am so honored that this year i get to lead this trip and then next year we're actually doing multiple itineraries and i will be leading nice. one as well so nice. uh, yeah i will be getting down for at least the next couple years for sure i will be in the pantanal which is a dream come true as a <laughs> conservation <laughs> biologist obsessed with cats so yeah <laughs> Good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I always love to ask this question and since you have such a wide range of experience and I'm sure you've been through a lot, what advice would you like to give to those listening right now? I think the, the best advice that I can give anybody is on one hand is if you're doing conservation work or if you like a nature, just keep doing what you do, because if you're doing it honestly, yeah, just keep at it. It's it's even if it doesn't look like it, it's making a difference, and it's getting to people. People and and sometimes we feel like we don't get noticed enough. And trust me, whatever footprint we are leaving behind, somebody will see it eventually. So just keep at it and and be be happy that you're doing it. And on that same note, as we were talking about this left and right and extremes uh, recent, uh, right, uh, minutes ago, don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into the trap of the extremes. Don't take a side... Just do it for conservation and get as much people as you can involved in whatever you're doing. Don't fall into the trap of taking sides because if you take sides, there's another side right in front of you that is being pushed away of your own uh, goals and projects. So just do what you do and get as much people as you can involved. That's what I, that's what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> That's great advice. And so, oh, Ramon, I could seriously just talk to you all day. And I hope <laughs> that one day that we sit down it's, with a glass of wine or a bourbon or a beer, yeah. whatever, whatever liquid coffee, I don't care. <laughs> Hopefully one day we have the, the ability, especially Costa Rica coffee, because mm-hmm. um, I drank so much Costa Rican good. coffee when I was there. It was I almost didn't it's sleep because really it was so freaking good. And I, I love yeah. coffee. I'm like a coffee snob now. Um, yeah. But anyways, that was a total tangent. <laughs> How can somebody get a hold of you and find your work? Maybe uh, purchase a piece or connect with you or, or see everything that you're up to. What's the best way someone yeah. to go about that? Uh, I have I have I have made two main uh, 
platforms. One is my website, which is uh, ramoncasares.net. That's net in N-E-T. And the other one is Instagram. Right now I'm, I'm very active in, uh, through Instagram, which is casares.gallery. Uh, and there you can see a lot of behind the scenes videos, my photoshoot, my latest projects and stuff like that. So yeah, I would just uh, <laughs> direct them to those two platforms. My website to contact me directly and Instagram too. I manage it myself. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you, Ramon, so much for sitting down with me today, sharing your thank amazing you. story. And please keep us all up to date as your journey evolves. Absolutely. I know that you're going to have some more crazy stories, I'm sure. Hopefully one <laughs> yeah. day, like I said, we'll sit down together and maybe even you can show me some things with, the, with your magical camera skills. Totally. Take mine totally. up a notch, please. <laughs> I appreciate again. I appreciate the invite. I have a great. Time. It's like talking to myself. So I really have a good time because I love talking to myself. But I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. I had a great time, and I hope everybody at least gets something out of what I have to say. And that's pretty much it. I, I had a great time, so I appreciate the invitation. Such a thought-provoking conversation, right? If you have any questions or thoughts you'd like to pose to the Rewildology community, please post your questions in the Rewildologist Facebook group or in the comment section of this episode's YouTube video. I read every comment posted across all of the show's platforms, and I will gladly interact with you. As always, I want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. To support the show, please consider making a monetary donation at the website to help me keep this show ad-free and on the airwaves. You can also purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. Some zero-cost ways to support this show include subscribing to the newsletter where I share information about the latest episode, opportunities across the field that I find, headlines worth reading, and updates from past guests. Also, follow the show on your favorite social media app, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and leave a rating and review to boost the algorithm and let others learn from these amazing guests. Lastly, I want to thank Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. To see the Focusrite gear I use to record the show, head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>